Next week, Jeremy Smith, you heard from him during the offering time, one of our elders will be bringing the message on just helping us to see God's heart on global outreach, on, on the need for missions, on um, mobilizing and giving and going and praying and welcoming. So I want to encourage you toward that next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, January 15th, we'll be back in the final chapters of Isaiah. We'll pick up with Isaiah 55 on January 15th. So what motivates you? What, what stirs your passion? What, uh, what causes you to stand up, raise your voice, and shout? It's an appropriate question following all of the football games and stuff over the last few days. What, what gets you um, sparked up and makes you want to earn money so that you can do whatever this is or get done with your work so that you can get on to whatever activity this is? Back in 1845, the American theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called A Treatise on Religious Affections, and it's talking about these passions of ours. To understand what Edwards meant by religious affections, he offered just a brief lesson in anthropology, the, the, the nature of man, and, and he wrote of two particular gifts, precious gifts, that God gives to man, and one of those being our ability to, to perceive things around us, to understand the world around us, to, to look at it and see it and, and take it in. And the second of those things that God has given us is the ability to respond to what we see, to, to form opinions, to draw judgments about the things that we see. Uh, modern writers, guys like Paul Tripp, would describe this as, our, uh, as, as God giving us the ability to interpret things around us, and that we are constantly interpreting. We are constantly looking at the reality that surrounds us, and making judgments about that, our likes, our dislikes, the things we move toward, the things we move away from, based on how we interpret them. This last month, Robin and I watched a, a lot of Hallmark movies. <laughs> the plots are entirely predictable, those of you who know them. Boy meets girl, boy and girl somehow become separated, boy and girl somehow become reunited, they kiss, they say Merry Christmas, and presumably they live happily ever after. Uh, I heard several of the people after the first service say the word sappy in connection with that, and that's probably right. Um, as predictable as the plots were, though, were the responses of my wife and I. One of us would watch and get misty-eyed and emotional, and the other would simply watch and enjoy. The same movie elicited two very different responses from two people who think very much alike on a lot of things. I still can't fathom how my wife didn't cry during any of those movies. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm the sappy one. But that gets us to the point that God made us interpreters. We look at reality and we, we decide things that we like and dislike. We make judgments about it. And Edwards used the word inclinations to describe how we are inclined toward or away from something, how we judge something that we disregard or something that we truly embrace, approving or disapproving. There are, there are many things we may be different, indifferent about, things that we, we don't really care a great deal about, but there are many things that we are inclined one way or the other to, to like or dislike. And Edwards went on to say that the inclinations that vigorously stir our hearts, he called them affections. We might call them passions, another extension of emotions, the, 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 the things that I am inclined toward that, that really stir me up. And so my wife and kids um, might be my favorite sports team, uh, might be my attitude toward cooked liver, 
Um, I, I love my wife and kids. I am inclined toward them. I, I really like the Los Angeles Rams, and I, I am inclined to root for them. And, and I will force my way through liver. If I came to your house and you cooked it for dinner, I, I wouldn't give you a five-star review, but I would do my best to get through it. Well, Edwards contends that a true follower of Jesus Christ will have affections that are stirred for the Savior, that we will not only be inclined toward him, but we will be vigorously inclined toward him. And he said there will be vigorous exercises of the inclination and the will toward our Lord and Savior. And he then quotes in the context of talking about this Luke 14, 26, which is really one of the hard sayings of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Speaking to the the priority that Christ must have, the, the centrality that Jesus Christ must have in our lives over all others, that he must be preeminent. And so what moves you? There's much that you may be indifferent about, things that you could care less, move toward, move against. It really doesn't matter a whole lot. But there are also those things that stir you, that you feel strongly about, that you run toward or from. And to Jonathan Edwards' point, every man, woman, and child has affections, things that we're inclined toward or against. He wrote this, the affections of men are the springs of man's motion. Talking about that which would push us into motion. The affections of man are the springs of man's motion. Take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all anger, zeal, and affectionate desire, and the world would be, in a great measure, motionless and dead. Everyone has affections. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, Edward's point, and I, I think it's true to Scripture, is that what matters is our religious affections. What is it that grips my soul? What is it that stirs my heart? What is it that I embrace passionately? And also, what might I dread in some way? What spurs me to action? It's really a question of how my heart engages with God and his word and with Christ and his gospel and with the body of Christ and with my neighbors in the world. Turn to John chapter 4. I, I, we'll, we'll be in several passages today, but we'll start in John 4. All of this is to just frame our study on, on the subject of worship. We know the word worship. We know it has something to do with worthness, the, the worth of something, something being worthy of our attention, of our praise, of our testimony. And so worship has that connotation to it. But there's also a sense in which we can sometimes be vague about what worship is. Is it what we do on Sunday mornings? Is it the singing part of what we do on Sunday mornings? Is it something that I, I think I know it and I, I can know it when I see it? You know, I know that this is worship. What can we see about worship? And in John 4, Jesus tells us something about worship that comes in the midst of a conversation with a woman, Samaritan woman at a well. And he begins by talking to her about eternal life and her sin and her response, as we have all done at one time or another when, when the subject is uncomfortable, in this case talking about her sin, she changes the subject. She, she moves on to something else and tries to, to, to move Jesus to another topic. Instead of talking about her string of failed marriages, she says, I, I, I presume that you're something special, so let's, let's do a theological debate here. John 4, 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, 
based on what you know about me. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So at this point, she's saying, okay, so you know some stuff about me that I'm not especially proud of, fine. Um, but let me now engage you in a question that has separated the Samaritans and the Jews for literally centuries at this point. And that's the question of where to worship. Are we supposed to go to Jerusalem, to the temple there, or do we worship here on Mount Gerizim in, in uh, Samaria, which was the, the, the place that they had designated and believed to be the, the, the site of God's dwelling. John 4, 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verses 23 and 24 are really central to our understanding of worship. Jesus says, if you want to understand what it is God's, what is God's desire concerning worship, then, then this is the kind of worshiper the Father is seeking. And twice he describes that worshiper as one who worships in spirit and in truth. And so there's our starting point. I, I really want to look at three aspects of worship this morning, um, but the first two are here, spiritual, biblical, and then the third one we'll talk about is communal, but spiritual. Jesus says to worship in spirit. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Within American evangelicalism, there are some quarters that are prone to say that worshiping in spirit or by the spirit means some sort of higher experience of worship. It's kind of like um, some of us are on the ground floor of worship and those who are worshiping in spirit or by the spirit are sort of attaining to maybe some kind of higher level that feels different and better and has more of the Holy Spirit involved. That's not what these passages are saying. To worship in or by the Spirit, really, I'm going to hit two aspects of it, but at its most simple level, it is speaking of the fact that those who are true worshipers are joined to Christ by virtue of the work of the Spirit of God. They are actually in the Spirit. They are united because of the work of the Spirit. They have been cleansed of their sins, and they have been given new life by the Spirit, and it is that means by which they now have access to the Father to come before Him and to worship Him. And so they worship as those who have truly been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and now regenerated by the Spirit and given life. Psalm 105, this description of worship I think is helpful. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. There's the sort of entrance into worship, which is the joining with Christ, being a believer in Jesus Christ. But then the next aspect of worshiping in spirit or by the spirit is really a sincerity of worship that is that is governed, that is fostered by the Holy Spirit within us. What the psalmist is describing at first is external actions that in some respect anyone could 
emulate in some way, speaking words of thanksgiving, calling on the name of the Lord, singing songs, telling of his works. But then he says, glory in his name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. It, it testifies to the fact that it's not merely external actions that are worship, but rather it is that which is from the heart, that which sincerely is seeking after the Lord and that finds its joy in him. The, the, the woman at the well thought that not only could she pivot the conversation, but thought that the, the, the primary issue now concerning the worship wars of her day was location. And Jesus, as he always does in encountering people, says, no, the issue is your heart. It, it's a question of your posture and what it is that you believe. And so to worship in spirit is to, to not only trust in Jesus Christ, but it is to speak of a sincere faith of one that is, is governed and fostered by the Holy Spirit and is directed at the glory of God. And so for us this morning, two, two quick questions by way of application. The first one being, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? That, that's the, the, the most paramount question before you even consider worship or anything having to do with worship. Do you understand and believe that you are a sinner who would be separated from the creator, from, from the God of the universe, unless you put your trust in Jesus Christ, unless you turn to Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and embrace Jesus as Savior, that he came and gave the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice for your sin. And all who fully trust in him are saved. That's the starting point of true worship. The, the, the second question I would give to you is, are you seeking to be led by God's Spirit? Are you seeking to be submissive to the Spirit of God? Galatians 5.16 commands believers to walk by the Spirit because the, the counter to that is we are led by the desires of the flesh. And so there's, a, there's an action here on the part of our wills to say, I, I desire to be submitted to God's leadership. I'm, I'm, I'm actually praying and asking God to lead me, asking His Spirit to, to fill me, to use the language of Ephesians 5.18 when it says to keep on being filled with the Spirit. I, I'm, I'm seeking to yield to God's Spirit as opposed to the desires of the flesh. And so do you approach each day, including our corporate gatherings, as, as God-given opportunities to, to plead for God, to pour out grace, and to help you through His Spirit, to, to walk by His Spirit, to be led by His Spirit and controlled by His Spirit. Um, Lord, keep me seeking your desires, your glory, because there's a, there's a constant battle in my flesh to want to pursue my own uh, and, and, and to, to, to get done what I want to get done and help me guard my heart that I might truly, sincerely worship you. Throughout his word, God repeatedly condemns actions, forms, and words that are put forth as worship but are insincere, that are coming from hearts that are not truly committed to him, that are just people going through motions. And, and God repeatedly condemns that. And so Amos is one example. God is condemning the, the, the society, the Jewish culture, because of its injustice. It, it's showing um, unkindness to the people, to those in need. It's not helping them, rather it's trampling over them. And so in Amos 5, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. That is a dramatic indictment from God saying that 
what you're doing is all the sort of prescribed external actions. There's an assembly, there's a feast, there's a peace offering, there's solemn assemblies and grain offerings, and I don't want any of it. I don't want to hear your songs because your your life is not matching up with with what you're doing. I I know your heart, and your heart is craving for injustice and and wanting to trample on people and, and is entirely insincere. They did the activities of worship, but not out of love for God or love for neighbor. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people. So worship is spiritual. Second, it's it's biblical. True worship is God's people praising and glorifying God in response to truth that he has revealed to us in his word. In in particular, the the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to worship God on the basis of truth. True worship is not thoughtless emotion or something that just happens spontaneously apart from truth. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is emotion that, that can be a part of worship. There can even be spontaneity in worship, but it's not separated from truth that it is, it is based on what we have seen and learned about God. It is, it is a response of a person who has been informed by God's word of the greatness of our God, of who he is and what he has done and who I am and how he has delivered me. And so it is God-centered. It is inclined toward understanding him and giving honor and glory to him for who he says that he is. When Paul preaches to the philosophers in Athens, he notes the the, the statues around to all of the different deities that they are claiming to worship. And Paul says, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And the late theologian John Stott writes, it is impossible to worship an unknown God, for if we do not know him, we cannot worship him, and our so-called worship is bound to degenerate into idolatry. We must have revelation from God, which has come to us through his word, in order to worship him. We must know him as he has shown himself to us and know ourselves in light of that. And that is then what shows us why he is worthy of our worship. That is what we are responding to. And so when we gather, the reading and preaching of God's word is central to our gathering because we believe we need to hear from the Lord's word. He needs to speak, and we respond to that and answer back with worship. At the heart of this is the simple reality that as human beings, we are made as worshipers. That's how God created us with that capacity to worship. If you consider Adam and Eve, D.A. Carson writes this. He says, God's image bearers, speaking of Adam and Eve, delighted in the perfection of his creation and the pleasure of his presence precisely because they were perfectly oriented toward him. There was no need to exhort human beings to worship. Their entire existence revolved around the God who had made them. And what does Satan do? Satan comes and he turns their affections. First, he turns their affection toward the fruit of the tree that's in the garden that that was forbidden from them. And he turns their affection by saying, isn't that lovely? Isn't that look desirable for eating? And then he turns their affections where Satan always turns the affections of man or tries to, which is inward, back toward self. And don't you want that? Wouldn't you be satisfied by that? Think of the knowledge. You would have knowledge like God 
if you ate of this fruit. And, and, and so it's, a, it's an act of worship. They've gone now from worshiping the living God to now worshiping self. And, and Carson concludes this way. He says, at the heart of the fall is the self-love that destroys our God-centeredness. Implicitly, of course, all failure to worship God is neither more nor less than idolatry. Because we are finite, we will inevitably worship something or someone. We probably know better than to say outright, I want this because I think it's better than God. I, I think this person or whatever this is is better than God. We know that that's wrong and we shouldn't say that. And yet, it is what we so often do with our desires. I want that relationship. I want that approval. I want that possession. I want that status. I want that fantasy fulfilled in some way. The, these things that we crave that become objects of worship to the point that we will even disregard God's will to pursue them. Instead of believing the truth that God is all satisfying, that his love for me is perfect, that his faithfulness is enduring, and instead of holding fast to those truths, I, I give my affections over to a part of his creation rather than the creator. Think again about Edward's argument about our affections, who and what delights you, energizes you, raises your heart rate, commands your attention, leaves you longing for more. Now listen, I, I, some of those can, can aptly be applied to human relationships. Certainly the marriage relationship should have elements of all of those things, but who is it that supremely, perfectly, unfailingly commands my attention and energizes me and is the one who is faithful and loves me perfectly? Who is the one that is worthy of worship? And, and, and the flip side of that is what causes the most discouragement for you. What, what, what's going on at the center of most of your anger when, when, when you have an outburst? Is it because something was taken away? Some desire was not given to you? In some way you were left unsatisfied and so you reacted because you wanted that. Again, it's a reflection on our worship. And our worship is a reflection on what we think on which is ultimately what brings us back to why worship must be biblical. We must be people of the book, committed to, to filling our minds with the knowledge of the Holy One that we were just singing about a few minutes ago, the incomparability of God, the, the unfailingness of God, and meditating on those truths. A couple minutes ago, we were talking about worship being spiritual. I alluded to being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, the command there to keep on being filled with the Spirit. Parallel passage to that is in Colossians 3, Paul writing to the church at Colossae. And in Colossians 3.16, he sort of fills in what that looks like when we struggle maybe to understand what it is to be filled with the Spirit. He says, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The, the word of Christ and the Holy Spirit work in unison to, to grow us, to, to mature us, to build our worship. It, it, the, the one who is meditating, who loves the Lord and is meditating on his word is going to be increasingly yielding to the control of his spirit. And, and the spirit is going to increasingly lead us back into his word. Those two cooperate in, in causing us to grow. 
One last passage I just want you to think about in terms of worship being biblical, and and obviously we won't spend uh, all the time we could on this passage, but Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a 176-verse tribute, celebration to the commands, statutes, precepts, laws, words of God. Virtually every verse in Psalm 119 has some allusion to to God's words in some way, and the psalmist is responding to those statutes and those words. He says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he says that he knows God's love because of God's word, because of what it says. He knows that God is faithful because that's what God's truth says. He knows that God is just and merciful and righteousness because of what he's read in God's law. And so all of that truth has informed him, and he's now responding in worship as he's read this in the Word. And those truths become the grist for his praise. So he he goes on and he says, I hope in your Word, so therefore I rejoice in you. Because your commands are delightful, I tell others about you. Um, my, My soul is consumed with longing for your Word. Let me read just a few verses near the end of Psalm 119. This is starting in verse 169. Listen to the psalmist say, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. No one would read Psalm 119 and suggest that we are dealing with somebody who is sort of immature in their belief. On the other hand, we read Psalm 119 and we see, we see the testimony of a psalmist who has a robust knowledge of God and is rehearsing that. And yet, he's saying in verse 169, Lord, hear me, I want to understand you better according to your word. I'm crying out to you that I, I, I don't know nearly enough. I don't understand you nearly enough and I want more understanding of you that is according to your word. So increase my knowledge, and consequently, my lips will pour forth praise because of of showing me more of who you are, allowing me to respond even more in worship. I know you better, and my praise increases. So here's the application on this. Are you being intentional about spending time in the word? Here's the January 1st question, since we're together on New Year's morning. What's your plan for 2023 to invest time in God's word. And and, and not saying that there's a requirement that you read the Bible through in a year. That's a, a great ambition and there are wonderful plans to help you do that. But more than that, what what structured plan do you have for yourself to make sure that you are going to be focusing in the Word and reading the Word and and thinking about the Word? Um, I I would just encourage you that if you have questions about that, if you're looking for some help in that area, reading plans or those, anything like that, talk to one of the elders. They they would love to suggest to you one or two ideas of of things you can do in your reading. But the, the point being... Our worship is biblical, and and for it to be biblical, it must be fed. And we need to be people who are in the Word regularly, consistently. Worship spiritual, biblical, finally it's communal. Let me be careful on this one to, to, to say up front. All of life for the believer is intended to be worship. 
In all that we do, we are to bring glory to God in our jobs, in our interactions, in our dealings with our family, in how we deal with our neighbors, how we have our own quiet meditation time at home. So worship is very much an individual part of, of what we do all day long. But, but worship cannot be just individual. What's clear in Scripture is there are calls for the individual to assemble with other believers and to worship Corporately, we see that in the Psalm, Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed, plural, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered from the lands from the east, the west, the north, and the south. The redeemed, a community of believers. And he'll elaborate later in the same Psalm, verse 22, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Let the community, the, the, this plural group, sing together and testify together and, and worship together. The assembled Verse 32 of the same Psalm 107 says, Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. Psalmist is being very clear here that he's not just giving general directions about praise that, that just for individual believers, but he's saying to individual believers, part of your calling is to come together as we're doing exactly this morning, as we are assembling so that we can share in these things together and give thanks and praise as an assembly. That, that psalm, Psalm 107, like so many of the psalms, recounts many of God's wondrous works amongst his people, how he, his steadfast love uh, delivers his people, how he saves them, how he delivers those in distress. Four times in Psalm 107, it speaks of those who are in trouble, crying out and the Lord delivering them from distress. The, the purpose, though, of, of all these testimonies of God's power to save and, and to deliver his people ultimately is to bring us to the place that we would then gather as the congregation and, and sing joyful songs and give thanks. That we would then come together and, and share testimonies of what it is that God has done. It's calling the community to worship. Psalm 149 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. It's a message that's repeated again and again that God has called us to meditate on his truth, to sing of his truth, to pray from, based on his truth, and to give thanks corporately, to come and do those things together in the assembly. And so it then comes as no surprise when the early church is born in Jerusalem and we read in Acts 2 that they would come to the portico outside the edge of the temple and, and they would meet there and they would gather for fellowship and for breaking of the bread and hearing the apostles' teaching. And then Acts 2.46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people." There's a half a dozen more references in the book of Acts to the gathering of the people in, in, in local assemblies. And the church belongs to Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. And he has exhorted us to come together. And, and primary to the purpose of us gathering is to worship him corporately, is to come because we are all coming on the same ground as the same needy sinners who all needed Christ's grace to be shed on us and his death for us so that we might be redeemed from our sinfulness and forgiven. On this topic of corporate worship, one other passage that we often think about in the New Testament is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, the gathering together of the saints. 
But it's not just those two verses. Those are the two we, we tend to proof text the need to gather the body. But it's really the tone of, of the whole passage that precedes it. I want to do something a little bit different. I want us to read this corporately because this passage that leads up to 24 and 25 is filled with let us, we, gather. It, 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 it all emphasizes this corporateness. And so I'm going to ask you, you can remain seated or stand as you feel led. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Let's just read this passage together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you get the emphasis on we and us? Let us. Throughout the, the whole passage, there is a call here. As, as individual believers, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and you are able to call God Father and you are able to approach him in worship and worship should be a part of your life. But the writer of Hebrews is envisioning the, the reality that we also are gathered together, that we approach God corporately, that we come together as believers, as those who have all been ransomed by the same blood of Jesus Christ, so that we might come to him and sing together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I was thinking about this this week and just the, the, this corporate worship theme, and it, it seems like forever ago that I remember the days when, when Robin and I used to roll up to corporate worship with five little ones, and um, I generally had the pastor card in my pocket, so all credit due here. My wife is the one who largely prepared and dressed them so that they were all ready to go when we went to worship. But, but I remember those days that all of you have experienced when there have been get, get, getting to to corporate worship, getting to Sunday morning worship has seemed like a mountain to climb. When every possible obstacle that could come up just seems to surface in some way, and you finally get everybody dressed, and you've gotten past whatever ticky-tacky arguments have gone on in the car on the way, and, and you're just getting there much less having a heart at that point that is prepared to worship Almighty God, that is prepared to be quiet and to worship Him. And it's tempting on those days to just bag it, especially in, in this day and age when online there is so much available and it's, I, I can sit in my jammies and I don't have to get the kids dressed, right? And, and so let me just encourage you, listen to Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The picture is the individual wor worshiper who delights in his or her study of the Lord and his word. 
He, is, he or she has, has meditated on the Lord, has taken in God's truth and looked at Yahweh's great works. But what that generates within the soul is an eagerness to now come and be with other brothers and sisters and to worship together with them, with the assembled in the congregation. It is not just our privilege it is what we are called to as true worshipers of the living God, that we would come from our weeks of, of, of full activity and busyness and, and hopefully study and worship and all that we have done, that we would rejoice at being able to come together in the congregation with the assembled ones and be the temple of the living God, singing praises to him and drawing near before our king and joyfully worshiping him. By gathering as we are this morning, it is a reminder to all of us, to each of us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We got here through the precious good news of Jesus Christ, and we are now here to adore Him, to lift our voices together and worship Him joyfully. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as worshipers as those who are imperfect in our worship, inconsistent at times, who struggle to focus our attention sometimes, whether it be at home in our quiet time and, and our minds can be distracted or here in corporate gathering, Lord, we, we confess before you that there are times when, when we just struggle to, to fix our hearts, focus on your glory and your goodness to remember again who we are, how you met us in our need and our sin and what you have done and, and why it is we are here and who it is we adore. And so forgive us for when worship takes a back seat to other things, sometimes important things and sometimes silly things. Lord, forgive us when we lose sight of giving you glory and giving you praise. Help us, help us in our in our day-to-day -day activities, at our jobs, at our raising of kids, at our fellowship with one another, the activities that we are called to. Help us to, to have a mind that is desiring to see you exalted through our words, through our conduct, through our thinking. And Lord, then we, we, we give you thanks for the sweet privilege it is that we can come together like this and be able to give you praise. Father, I pray that if there's anyone listening this morning here or online who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that today they would see that the, 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 the worship of you is not something that is merely an external activity of some sort. It's not by going to church that ultimately you are pleased by singing a song or giving an offering. It is by fully trusting in Jesus Christ. The, the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the place of turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus Christ and then sincerely being able to worship you. Lord God, we thank you. Thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to meditate on your word. And now, Lord, we pray that you would receive our offering of praise and thanksgiving as we respond to your truth and sing with joyous hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.